Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the marvellous Nicole Yance. We're talking about Nicole's own experience of burnout and what she learned from that. She shares lots of useful strategies with us and she also talks about her friend Moira. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Nicole. Hi. It is so lovely to meet you because um, we've been we've been trying to set this up for a while, and it's brilliant to to have you here. And I'm just so keen to have you come and talk to us about um, burnout, which is what you're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, thank you, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I know it's quite exciting, isn't it? We're just saying the sun is out. It's feeling good. Yes. We're ready. We're ready to talk. We're ready to talk about these things. Um, so we always begin with um, people just saying a little bit about their journey. So your journey into the PhD, through the PhD and, and um, out the other side. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Um, so I'm a political scientist and a human rights scholar. And I did my PhD here in Cambridge. And, you know, why I'm, while I'm saying that, I feel like I want to really impress you with all the great things I did and all the <laughs> papers that I wrote. But really, it wasn't really like that in the PhD. You know, at the core, I'm a writer. And so I sort of stumbled into the PhD. I was a journalist before that for 10 years. And I wanted to move to England and couldn't find a job as a journalist because I'm, you know, as you might hear, I'm German. So not so easy to find your way into a different country and get a job. And I thought, well, maybe as a backup option, I'll apply for a PhD. It would give me the chance to write a book and sort of elaborate on some of the topics that I have been writing on in the daily newspaper. And I was surprised because they took me. And even gave me a scholarship. And I thought, well, jackpot, um, I'm getting money to write this book, right? Um, Yeah, it was, I was super happy. And I had applied with a topic, um, yeah, for a qualitative research study on how multinational corporations impact on labor rights and human, human rights in local communities. And I thought, okay, I might be traveling. I might be doing interviews. I know how to do this. Great. So far. But then I flipped everything around because I noticed in the research that there was a huge gap related to quantitative data. So there was a huge amount of qualitative case studies on the topic, but we didn't have cross-country data to see what is happening across different countries um, in different industries. So I thought, well, I don't know anything about quantitative analysis. I'm going to do it. Amazing. <laughs> and, uh, it was oh man I've n- I've never quite come to a solution if this was the biggest mistake of my life or not but <laughs> whatever I ended up you know learning statistics in summer schools outside of Cambridge nice. because my department was extremely qualitative um, and I'm you know I'm very untalented so it took me a few years to learn it 
But then sort of the ball got rolling. I actually taught statistics as well because I was the only one doing it in my department. Um, but it was also really hard. You know, the data mm. didn't do what I wanted. Um, and I ended up wanting to prove it started, it became that thing. I want to prove to everyone I can do this. Mm. I became a perfectionist. I probably was before, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But I sort of ended up getting myself into this corner where I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't have the support because I was the only one doing quantitative analysis. And then I got really, really blocked. And so that was a time when I felt like, oh, no, what did I get into? Um, mm. And I really need to finish this. I'm, I'm sure your listeners know that moment when yes. you feel like I should have maybe never started this. <clears throat> yes. um, yeah. And so what got me out of it were two things. One was I started a writing group together with my friend Moira. Um, we called it the University of Cambridge Writing Group. And we would meet every day. We applied the structured writing method from Rowena Murray, right, yes. who we know, all of us. Yes, she's <laughs> and, a winner. Exactly. She's amazing. She's a great mentor of mine. And it was a, a magical time. We gave each other a safe space. We coached each other basically throughout our blocks in the best way that we could as students. It was the first time that I sort of understood what it means to have actual support with your writing. Mm -hmm. um, so that got me going, but I still couldn't finish. Like I felt it wasn't good enough. I felt I can't let, the, let it go. So what I did was I had a baby. And What's a good plan? <laughs> again, you know, biggest mistake or greatest blessing, of course, greatest blessing. But essentially what yes. happened was I had this little baby and I had this PhD, which was my second baby. And yes. I just knew if I want to spend time with my little girl, I'm going to have to submit that thing. Mm. So I went to the department and said, what's the absolute minimum version? What's the, le the lowest word count you will accept for me to hand it in? And they came back and said 60,000 words, which is essentially a master's degree, an MPhil at Cambridge. And I said, you know what? You know, a few weeks later, here are my 60,000 works. Thank you very much. Um, wow. And wow. yeah, it was very hard to let it go. My daughter helped me do that. Yes. And I ended up having minor corrections. And Amazing. That was, that was my PhD journey. Lots of ups and downs. Wow. 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 There's so much in there um, that I want to just. I squeezed it all in. On. <laughs> This is this is amazing. I think um, first of all, big shout out to Moira because she sounds awesome. Yes. We all need a Moira, mm -hmm. um, and so that that's awesome. And also the Rowena Murray. I'm, I, I can put a link into. So we were lucky enough to have Romina on, so I can put a link into that if people want to follow that up. I think this sense of. Well, first of all, what you said right at the beginning in terms of wanting to impress, I think that that, that um, seduction, that Kool-Aid that we all drink in terms of let me trot out all my all the great things that I've done. There's, there's being aware of that. Um, and, and also this, this then, this perfectionism that kicks in. And yeah. I think that's a really common thing, and I'm sure we'll come up in what we're about to talk about in a minute. Um and this sense of, of a challenge and not feeling good enough, 
you you said because you weren't talented, but you were doing a whole new thing, right? You went into a mm-hmm. whole new field in the middle of your PhD. And that isn't uncommon for people to do that. Um, and then to find themselves in, in a really difficult place and say, rather than acknowledging, wow, I'm doing something really groundbreaking here. I'm in a really difficult place actually to go, oh, I'm not good enough. It's like, well, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily true, right? You just need to get yourself a Moira. Exactly. And the other thing I love, um, because again, we had Catherine Pope on a a while ago talking about the the minimum viable thesis. And I love Mm -hmm. that you actually, that was you in action in terms of what do I need to do? What do I need to submit? Because I need to get it finished. Um, And that sense of that being a really real process of thinking about what can I do and as you say was helped for you because of external um I I want to say pressures but it's not a pressure is it external interests (laughs) other things that going on you know for some people it might be that they've they've got a job um that that now needs their attention you have the baby other people have you know moving things happen and you want to sort of end this process I keep thinking that I want to do a, a podcast episode on like divorcing your PhD and how oh, to yeah. kind of come to a good end. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, watch that, watch that space. If anybody wants to talk about that, please let me know. And I would love to love to talk to you about it. Um, but what, what I love is that you you did that. You took that really seriously. You handed in the minimum viable thesis mm-hmm. and, and passed and got it and got it done and did what you needed to do. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. That story is inspirational <laughs> in many, many ways. Um, so that was that journey. And then you've been on another journey. Yes. <laughs> as, as we all are. Life's mm-hmm. journey, right? Um, and which has brought you now to talk a lot about burnout. Um, and this is very, very, it's, you know, it's rife in academia, burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you understand burnout and and how you see it being expressed um, in the academy. So, um, yeah, that, that was a tough time and I'm still in recovery to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, you know, when I, I didn't for the longest time, I didn't actually know that I was burnt out. I just had all these weird symptoms I was irritable I was exhausted I felt I can't manage this I was fighting with my partner um I didn't want to go to work I sometimes dreaded opening my email and I got easily at anything someone would say oh Nicole you're teaching today or something like that anything I would get really upset and sort of I for the longest time I felt well I'm just going to work harder and harder and get a grant so I can get a teaching buyout or sort of like get a promotion and then maybe it'll be easier. So I was sort of worried and stressed for at least two years Mm. and as a lecturer, right? So this is when I was a lecturer at Nottingham. Mm. Mm. Um, Again, I had thought, well, great jackpots, you know, um, permanent position. Um, But it's sort of, it was really hard for me. And I didn't really feel that I can talk to people about that. I felt amazing and they are amazing. And I felt like, oh, they are all managing, but you know, something's wrong with me. Mm. Um, yeah. So I had all the symptoms that the, you know, um, World Health Organization puts on their list. I was exhausted. I didn't feel well. I felt my work doesn't matter. No one cares. You know, I felt distant from my work and I was not 
productive anymore. And mm-hmm. instead of stopping or seeking help, I just worked harder and I just told myself I'm not a quitter. Yes. So that's, yeah. And it, you know, I had friends telling me, why don't you take a month, month of sick leave or, you know, why don't you sort of like find a job where you don't have to commute because it was a commute from Cambridge to Nottingham. And I was just, no, I can do this. I'm going to prove to everyone again, yes, yes. my old story. Um, yes. Yeah. But my, you know, my body stopped me because I got panic attacks and I got them really bad. And some of your listeners might know what that means, but the heart starts racing. You start sweating, mm. you get dizzy and your breath doesn't, you know, I can feel my chest tightening right now while I t- I'm telling you this. My body remembers panic attacks really well. Yes. yes. And I just felt, well, okay, I'm dying. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's when I needed to go to the GP and I called in sick. And it was four months in the end that I was off work because my neural, you know, my neural system um, was just in fight or flight all the time. Mm. And I had no idea and I never rested and I couldn't, I never checked in with myself during that time and then boom crash. Um, Mm. Yeah. So that's sort of my story. I know you asked about the Academy as well. And so now that I'm more informed about burnout, I see it everywhere. You know, I I give a workshop somewhere in a university about productivity tools. And then I say it's Q and a time and all they ask is about my burnout story because I mention right. it to people right people are just coming to me asking what was it like how do I know that I'm on the edge on the verge of burnout you know what do I do it's a huge topic yes yeah. and heartbreaking for sure heartbreaking, yeah. isn't it I think there was I think in the the Nagoski um sisters that they Mm -hmm. they talk about that it's about 30 percent I think isn't it in academia which is much higher than in other other places and I mean I I imagine that that's it's even higher than that really um but because people don't report Mm -hmm. and I think there's something about isn't it you talked about you know I'm not a quitter I'm going to keep going yeah there's something in the sort of people that we are you know we are strong-minded in in the best ways committed hard-working all those good things but that actually then can kind of trip us up because we are achievers and we don't want to be seen as not achieving which actually you know it doesn't make any sense really in the bigger picture mm-hmm. but we're not no but we're not encouraged to look differently at it and understand what's going on yeah and I think what's really important is what you mentioned about the bodily symptoms that actually a lot of those symptoms on the chart around burnout are physical symptoms. Yeah. And actually, again, in academia, we're not encouraged to check in with our bodies. Mm-mm. It's all about the brain. You're the brain on a, on some legs. <laughs> yep. That's exactly. <laughs> so, that's, that's very well put. Yeah. <laughs> so actually really listening to your body um, so that it doesn't need to scream at you in the way that it will do eventually. Mm-hmm. It's just so important. Um, and you talked about, and I, I think it's just so brilliant that you are sharing your story because I know it's been helpful already, will be helpful to so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we'll put the links to, to um, information that people can kind of follow up on this because I know it will touch a lot of people. Um, but I wonder now if you could just, 
help us to to reflect on how to check in and what steps you you might take um, if you recognize any anything that we're talking about here mm. so for that check-in to happen the most important thing is to create space mm. it's also the hardest thing in yes. the pressure cooker world of academia yes of course right and what I do with you know I'm a coach now with my clients we put a recovery afternoon or even just an hour into their week where they can check in with themselves and just breathe actively recover um to just feel their body because mm. as you said we don't right um mm. and the good thing about taking recovery time is that it's actually part of the flow cycle so if you have written massively in the flow you need to take recovery for your brain to di to digest and to sort of um, recalibrate. And then you can go in back into the hamster wheel for a while, but then you will need that recovery again. Mm -hmm. And so the way I'm selling the recovery to my very resistant and reluctant clients, <laughs> <laughs> who are academics, um, is that I say, you will write more productively if you give yourself a break. Yes. And that is totally true. But yes. what is also true is that this creates the space that you need to just, you know, check in on yourself, check in on your body, breathe, whatever it helps you, meditate, do yoga, take a walk in nature. If you don't do that regularly, you are going to, or I don't know about everyone listening, but I spiraled out of control yes. and got right into the burnout. So the best thing is taking recovery time and actually scheduling it in. If you don't schedule it in, you're not going to take it. It's so banal and simple but I'm forcing each and every of my client to show me their calendar and I forced them to put that in the calendar. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Tough love. Yes. Brilliant. Brilliant. And it, well, it is so true, isn't it? If it isn't on the schedule, it's highly unlikely to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and then it gets locked in, right? Because those sorts of things are then the things that people take out, go, oh, well, I'll miss, I'll miss yoga today because I've got to, a deadline. It's like, well, no, don't do that <laughs> yeah yeah did it a hundred times yeah so this this checking in and I love this sense of a recovery afternoon a recovery day this day of attending to yourself um how gorgeous is that how gorgeous is that and like you say yeah, very simple but really really effective do you have any because we, we always at the ends Okay. have a top tip I'm wondering whether that is your top tip in terms of recovery afternoon or day or whether you did have something else to um share with us mm. I think another top tip is try and constantly reframe your story and reframe and detox your thoughts about yourself Mm. Um, some of us know what that means. Um, some of us don't do it yet, or some of us know it and don't do it. Essentially, it means that when you come out of a really difficult week and you feel like I haven't finished my paper, uh, you know, I have that grant and all these things, write these thoughts down as a first step. And then as a second step, feel them, feel in your body how you feel when you say these things. They are quite harsh. They come right from the inner critic. Mm. And then once you've felt it, because we don't want to push negativity or negative thoughts aside, they're just going to be bottled up, right? Mm. Once you've felt it, 
take another minute and write down if your best friend saw you in that situation, how would they write that down in a different way? How could this week have been actually a quite successful week, given that it was a tough one and given that you are probably already exhausted? And then you can reframe that story. Your story at the end of the week on Friday is not I failed, but it's I've had a really tough week. A few things didn't work for me, but here is me. I've been resilient. I've persevered. I did what I could within the time. And I'm, you know, I'm going to step into next week after I had a break on the weekend to recover and I'll do my best next week. And this is a very different way of thinking about yourself that is way more positive and way more productive. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it's so true, isn't it? We say things to ourselves that we would never, ever say to anybody mm. else. Um, and in fact, you know, we're encouraging and forgiving and understanding and compassionate of other people, but not of ourselves, not of ourselves. Yeah. So this sense of, yeah, talking to yourself as if you were, as if you were your friend, because why wouldn't you be your own best friend, people? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's the hardest thing. Yeah. Me, all my clients, we are all high achievers. Yes. Yeah. And highly intelligent. Yes. And at the same time, being self-compassionate. Yes. really hard being kind to yourself taking the time to check in with yourself letting go of all that work buzz it's the hardest thing and even now that I'm a coach I need to really watch it I have my own coach who is watching out for me to take those breaks because I can easily go into burnout again it's yes. it can happen very fast yeah yes yes oh I love it I love it and I love the energy that you're bringing because I can feel it that mm. sense of of being of of I feel in your voice the kind of the space and the compassion and the, yeah, what a gorgeous energy to be in. Well, thank you. Nicole, thank you so much for all of that. Um, as I say, I will be, everything will be in the show notes for people to follow up, but, but thank you for speaking out on this issue um, and for all the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. I hope it helps any of the listeners um, just to know you're really not alone. Thank you so much, you, and thank you all for listening. Mm -hmm.